Jewish people are counting on us back here at home to hold the rope. And last week we talked about that there were basically three ways that we could hold the rope. And we said we could hold the rope with our faith. And we talked about uh, the importance of prayer and how probably prayer is the greatest act of faith that we as Christians engage in. And how our missionaries, those in particular that we support, uh, how they need our prayers. And uh, if you remember last week, I told you an incredible story from the life of David Livingstone, how David Livingstone had made his way into uh, the heart of Africa and was taking the gospel to tribes that had never heard uh, about Christ at all, and how they had plotted on a particular night, I can't remember the exact date, they had plotted on this particular night to kill Livingstone, and yet uh, the next morning David Livingstone awoke and he was not dead. And later on, as this tribe was eventually converted by the gospel, David asked the, um, the leader of the tribe um, about the supposed, rumored uh, assassination uh, of David Livingstone, uh, of his own life. And to which the, the leader of this uh, tribe came back and said, well, uh, upon arriving to where you were, uh, we found 47 men guarding you. To which Livingstone replied, uh, there's nobody but me. There, there's no guards, there's no army, there's, there's nobody else here but me. And as he was sharing this story back home in Scotland, as he had gone back to raise uh, support for the ongoing work of his mission, he told that story, and a young man came up to Livingstone at the end and had his journal and said, Mr. Livingstone, was this the date that, that these men were going to kill you? Is this the date that uh, the, the, uh, the, the chief said that there were 47 men surrounding you, and so uh, they gave up their attempts to assassinate you? And he said, yes, that was the date. And the young man had written in his journal that he was part of a prayer meeting that night at that church, and 47 men had gathered to pray for David Livingstone. Now that's a pretty good story, right? What does it remind us? That prayer, it does more than works. Prayer is the means by which God works in this world. He works through our prayers. He's not... He's not held captive by our prayers because nothing can hold God captive. But God has so ordained His running of the world that He runs His world and He does His work in the world through the prayers of His people. And we're going to come back and talk about prayer next week. But we said we hold the rope with our faith through our prayers. We hold the rope through our firmness. But we also said that we hold the rope through our finances. And that's kind of what I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this morning, because uh, there's some aspects of giving that I want to touch on that we haven't touched on in, in some time. And some of you have not, were not even attending here when we touched on this many, many years ago. And so I, I want to revisit this uh, in uh, some ways, a fresh way, and then in some ways, it's not going to be fresh at all. It's just going to be a reminder of what we have talked about 
in the past. So this morning, I want to ask you a question. It should be pretty easy to answer in light of what we're talking about. But which of these subjects did, did Jesus preach on the most? Heaven, hell, or money? If you combined everything that Jesus said about heaven and hell together, they would not exceed how much he talked about money. About 15% of what Jesus talked about dealt with finances or money and possessions. Jesus talked more about money and possessions than he talked about heaven and hell combined. But here's the question. Why does Jesus put so much emphasis on money and possessions? That's the question we should ask. Why is there such an emphasis by Jesus? And that is because there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. Now look, a lot of people try to divorce their faith from their finances, but God sees them as inseparable. Every human being in this room, and every human being that will be born, has a bent either towards greed or they have a bent towards pride. Now, now here's what I mean by that. Greed is obvious, right? It's an unwillingness to be charitable towards others. That's what greed is. And a lot of people are born greedy. But, but there are other people that are born and they just come out of the womb as uh, giving people. Right? You, do you know anybody like that? Do you, you know somebody that you think, you know what, they're not even a Christian, but I mean, they, they are charitable people. They, they would give you the shirt off their back. And so it's this kind that's not so obvious. You see, greed is obvious, but pride is not so obvious. And here's what I mean by pride. It's, it's those people who are charitable for the sake of status. They want people to know that they're charitable. Uh, they they want to be thought of well in the community. They want to be thought of well by other people. Because it's a good thing to be generous. It's a good thing to be charitable. Or some people just, they, they do it out of pride in the sense of self-esteem. They, they give because they feel better about themselves. They, 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 uh, they, they feel like, you know what, I am a good person. I feel better about myself because I've given to whatever charity. And or, it could just be satisfaction. The pride of satisfaction that, that some people, you know what? They just, get this, they just get this rich emotional satisfaction from being charitable. And look, whether, whether you fall into the category of you're greedy and you just keep it all for yourself... Or, or whether it's pride and your motives for giving what you're giving uh, has nothing really to do with just the purity of charity, but it, it, it really has to do with your own emotional well-being, how you feel about yourself. Both types need the gospel. The greedy needs to be bent towards generosity, while the prideful needs to be bent towards Godliness and only the power of grace can affect such a change. 
So here's the three points this morning. This morning you've got three different sections of your bulletin that give you plenty of space to, to, to write notes and, and uh, anything that you want to write down this morning. So it's going to be very simple. Three points. Point number one is simply this. Our giving is a response to grace. Because look, our giving, if, if you tend to be the natural generous person, you need help this morning. You, you, need, you, you need to have your giving bent in the right direction. You need to have the motivation for that giving uh, to be corrected. Or if, you, if, if you're here this morning and you're just a greedy person, you, you try to hold on to as much as you can, you don't want to let anything go, you don't want to give anything to anybody because you work so hard for everything you got, why would you give it to somebody else that seems not to be working for what they need? And here's what we need to understand about giving this morning as Christians. I'm only speaking to Christians this morning. As a Christian, our giving is a response to grace. It's a response to grace. Now look at these verses that are going to come up on the screen. This is out of Luke 3, 7-14. I ask you to turn there in your Bibles. Hopefully you have. But let's, let's just read these verses together. I want you to see how it's a response of grace. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. This is John the Baptist. Think about this for a sermon opener. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, did it change? Yeah, there we go. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? Now, what's coming up is what I want you to pay close attention to because they're asking him a question concerning eternal life. And I want you to see what John has to say. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has one, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Okay, did you, did you get that? I'm a little behind up there, okay. So next, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And the soldiers also asked him, and, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. What is John saying here? Is John saying that the way to be saved is that you, you give your tunic away, is the way to be saved, is that you don't extort money from people as a tax collector? Is he saying the way to be saved as a soldier is that you're just content with your wages? 
What is John saying here? John is, is connecting something that's vitally important to us this morning. And what John is saying is that proof of repentance is by how we act. How, how do we know someone has genuinely experienced God's grace? How do we know that someone has truly been saved? How do we know that someone has truly turned from their sins to the Savior? And John is saying the proof of repentance is that everyone should share their clothes and their food with the poor. That's what he told the, that's what he told the, the, the entire group. If you got two tunics, give one away. He's not saying you do that to be saved. He says, if you are saved, if you've experienced grace, if, if, if God's grace has flooded into your heart, what does it do? It makes you a gracious person. And this is how an, in, an internal reality plays out in an external way. He told the tax collectors they shouldn't pocket extra money. Don't pocket extra money. Then he said, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers should be content with their wages and not extort money. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. One approach to money and possession, our approach to money and possessions is central to our spiritual lives. No one had asked John about finances. They wanted to know how to demonstrate spiritual transformation. They wanted to know, how do I know that I've truly repented? So why did John's response center almost exclusively on this idea of money and possessions? Because John wanted his audience to know our approach to money and possessions is central in our spiritual lives. This truth, though, is not isolated with John the Baptist. Look at this. You guys familiar with that wee little man named Zacchaeus? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, what does it say? I restore it fourfold. Now, now watch Jesus here. Watch his response. And Jesus said to him, What? Today, salvation has come to this house. Now, is Jesus saying, because you promised to do this, I promised to save you? Jesus is saying, no, this is what happens when the grace of God comes into someone's life, is that there becomes an external, I mean, the internal reality expresses itself in an external way. And one of the easiest ways for us to express that is that we become what we have experienced. If you've experienced grace, then what do you become? You become gracious. Jerusalem converts eagerly sold their possessions and gave them to the needy. I'm just going to keep giving you some scriptures here. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to any that had need. This is what happened right after the first sermon was preached, and 3,000 people were converted. Notice the verse. It's Acts 2.45. This is how the first church began to respond to their experience of the gospel of grace. 
I can get my clicker to work this morning. I'll give you some more scripture. This Jesus God raised up, and that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Let me go back to what's on the screen right here in front of you. And it says, And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Again, that's Acts 4. This is how the gospel continues to work its way out. Now, you get to the book of Ephesians, and there's these, this, these occultists, and they prove their authenticity of their conversion in Acts chapter 19, and look at what they did. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found that it came to how much? 50,000 pieces of silver. Everything that I read in the last couple of weeks, there's a little debate on this, but this can, this, 50, these 50,000 pieces of silver in today's monetary value would be in excess of $5 million. Now, y'all are saying, ain't no way books are worth that much. Well, these books were. This was the value. And they burned it. They didn't give it away. They burned it. After their experience of the gospel of grace. You see, the experience of grace triggers graciousness towards other. Grace reshapes us. It reshapes the greedy and it reshapes the proud. Why? Because what grace begins to do is grace begins to give us a motivation to give. You see, some people don't... Some people have no motivation at all to give. They want to keep it to themselves. And other people have the wrong motivation to give. And so when they give, though there may be some temporary satisfaction, self-esteem from it, it doesn't have any lasting value to it. But I want you to listen to Jesus' words concerning the greedy. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus is talking about a man who in the verses previous to this verse said that he had his, his wealth had grown at such an exponential rate that he tore down his barns because they weren't big enough to hold all that he had, and he built bigger barns to hold all that he had. Now, you know what? A person of grace, let me tell you how a person of grace would have responded to having their barns filled to capacity. They wouldn't tear their barn down and build bigger barns to, make, to, to hold the capacity. What they would do is they would take all that was excessive and they would give it away. Because that's what grace does. Grace does not hoard. Grace does not stockpile. Grace is liberal. I've, I've said this for years. The only thing you should ever be liberal about is your giving. 
Be liberal with it. Give and give and give more. Why? Because it's, it's out on the window of our church. You can't outgive God. You can't outgive God. And God says for those of us that are stockpiling and all we keep doing is building bigger and bigger and bigger so that we can get more and more and more. I didn't say it. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. He said, you're a fool. You're a fool. That's what greed does. That's what greed does. Mark, I'm probably going to have to have you to help me here. Something's not going good with the clicker here. There you go. The greatest indictment against him and the proof of his spiritual condition is that he was rich towards himself, but not rich towards God. Is there such a thing as a greedy Christian? Can there be? Can such a person exist? Let me answer the question this way. No, there cannot be greedy Christians. But what we can have is Christians who struggle with greed. There's a difference between being greedy and struggling with greed. Your greedy means that you don't ever give thought and you don't ever have a struggle. There's not ever any friction in your life about what you're doing with your finances and how you're stewarding them and how you're managing it. All you ever think about is more, 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 more for me, 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 me. That's greed. That, that in a Christian cannot exist. But what can exist is a Christian who gets more, more, more and is struggling with how much of me, me, me should keep of the more, more, more I get. Now, let me tell you why I say a greedy Christian cannot exist. I didn't say it. Paul says it. Look what he says, 1 Corinthians 6.10. Now, I want to write that verse down. He's talking about the people that don't get into heaven. What does it say? Nor the who? The greedy. Now, all of the things that Jesus could, uh, Paul could say about who doesn't get into heaven, Paul says here, I can tell you something. If you are greedy, you're not getting into heaven because Christians cannot live lives of greediness. They can struggle with greed, but they can't live a life of greed. Jesus isn't altogether against storing up, okay? Only storing up treasure on earth. You see, the guy that built bigger barns, what he should have done is not built bigger barns and store up more on earth. What he should have done is take the, the, what he had left over and used it to do what? Used it in earth, in the earth, to store up treasure in heaven. Look at what Jesus says. This is his word. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's what Jesus is saying. Laying up treasures on earth is dumb and storing up treasures in heaven is smart. 
doesn't take a rocket, science, a, fi- a rocket scientist, some kind of financial guru to figure out that laying it up on, in heaven is better than storing it up on earth. Now, let's talk about treasure in heaven, okay? This is, this is what I want to bring back to our attention. This is what gets lost, is heaven, it, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, okay? And this new heaven and new earth, they're not immaterial or intangible. Sometimes we think that we're just kind of floating around, you know, out in, you know, these ethereal bodies with harps, and we're playing music all the time, and we're some kind of disembodied spirit, And the bottom line is, when you die, we're going to put your body in the ground, okay? We're going to put your body in the ground, and then if the Lord tarries long enough, eventually to dust you shall return. But one day, according to 1 Corinthians 15, God is going to reconstitute your body, okay? And He is going to take your body that is on earth and your spirit, which is in heaven, and He is going to reunite them at that point in time. And you're going to have a body that will no longer die, decay. It will be uh, free of all, all of that. Okay, the, uh, Paul says this mortality shall put on immortality. And so what are we going to do? We're going to be in this material, tangible place called the new heaven and the new earth. And when Jesus speaks about treasures in heaven... We don't know the exact form of those tre- that those treasures will take. Treasures in heaven could be of material or spiritual nature, but either way, they are real, meaningful rewards for God's people who give generously. So that leads me to this. You're giving, this is the middle point, the second point. You're giving, whatever it is, will be rewarded. Your giving will be rewarded. Again, to the full extent, I can't, I can't tell you exactly in full detail what that looks like, but what I can give you a guarantee of is that your giving will be rewarded. Now, there's a guy named William Borden, uh, 1897, 1887 to 1913, uh, William Borden was a, a Yale graduate and an and a heir to a great wealth. He rejected a life of ease in order to bring the gospel to Muslims. He, re, he even refused to buy a car for himself. Borden gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. And after only four months of a missionary journey that took him to Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. You can go to his grave in Egypt right now. There is a headstone, there's an epitaph there in Egypt on a side road where missionaries are buried in Egypt. And this is what is said on his tombstone. He didn't put it there. This is what the people of Egypt said about William Borden. Are you ready? Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. When the news of William, William Borden's death was cabled back to the U.S., the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. And this is what it said, a wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural 
that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. And Borden, when they found, when they found him dead and his Bible beside him, these words that are coming up on the screen were the last six words that he had written in his Bible. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Why? Because when your life is touched by the gospel of grace, you know that giving all of yourself and everything that comes with that is worth it. Why? Because God will richly reward those who live such a life. Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know, it's only the fools that stockpile here on earth. It's the wise. It's, it's, it's those who've experienced God's grace who realize that what the Lord has done is only uh, uh, in, in His act of grace. The only way for us to respond to that is to be gracious. If you imagine heaven as a place where you'll strum a harp in endless tedium, you'll probably dread it. Who wants to go to that kind of place? I didn't want to go to choir practice as a kid. I don't really want to go to choir practice in heaven. Now, and I love choirs, but I just don't want to go to choir practice. I don't want to sit around and sing the same old songs all day long in heaven. But that's not what heaven is about. If we trust the Scripture, you'll be filled with anticipation for your heavenly home. Heaven will be a place of rest and relief from sin and suffering, but it will also be a place of great learning, activity, artistic uh, expression, exploration, camaraderie, and service. Heaven is going to be an incredible place. An incredible place. And the thing about it is, is that Jesus is watching us right here, right now, on planet Earth, and He notices the smallest acts of kindness that we do. And, and you know what He's doing? He's not only noticing our small acts of kindness, but Jesus is wanting to reward us. He says, And anyone who gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. God keeps a record of all that we do for Him. You don't believe that? Look at this scripture that's coming up on the screen. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and, and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. God is recording everything that we do. Now here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine there's a scribe in heaven that's recording each of the gifts that you give. The bike you gave to a neighborhood kid, the books you donated to prisoners, the monthly donations to the church, missionaries, pregnancy centers, they're all being chronicled by God. Scrolls are made to be read. And I don't know about you, but I look forward to hearing your giving story and meeting those that have been touched by what you gave. Back in the 80s, we had this song by a guy named Ray Bolts, it was called Thank You. Thank you for giving to the Lord. And the way the song goes is that uh, this guy has died and gone to heaven. And while he's in heaven, all of these people are coming up to him. And they're saying, thank you for what you gave. Thank you for being generous, not only with your time, but, but more importantly, being generous with your 
finances, with your offering, because the fact that you gave allowed me to be here today. Listen to me, church. Something you and I need to realize is that whether you put a penny in the box or whether you put a million dollars in the box, is that every financial gift that you give, God is taking that and He is strategically using it to shape the history of of the world. He is using that to bring people into his kingdom. And there are going to be people that will be in heaven one day that I believe that we will meet that in some way that we will come to realize that part of what we gave found its way into their village, into their hut, into their city, into the country where they lived, it helped print a Bible. It helped send a missionary. It, it enabled a radio program to be broadcast into that, into that place. But, but somehow, some way, God took the monies that you gave and that I gave, and He shaped the eternal destiny of people by it. Look at what Jesus... He says, If then you who have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth... Who will trust you with true riches? Listen, if God is entrusting you with, with a fair amount of financial resources here on earth, and, and you don't steward those well, then listen, don't believe for one second that when you get to heaven, He's going to entrust you with a lot of true riches. That's what that verse means. It's not true riches down here on earth. It's true riches that are to come. You see, what, what, we've got an option this morning. We can, either, we can either stockpile our rewards down here on earth and use them for ourselves, or we can do what Jesus says and we can stockpile those treasures in heaven. If you handle the Lord's money faithfully, Christ will give you true eternal riches. After speaking to the, of the shrewd servant's desire to use earthly resources, according to Luke 16.4, that people will welcome me into their houses... Jesus told his followers to use worldly wealth to gain friends. How about that? Use worldly wealth to gain friends by making a difference in their life here on earth. The reason so that when it is gone, when life on earth is over, you will be welcomed into, according to verse 9 of Luke 16, into eternal dwellings. Don't take this illustration literally, but I've used it before. I'll use it one more time. And that is, there's an, there, there's an old fable that's told um, that um, there's a rich man who was vaguely generous. He goes to heaven. A poor woman who is incredibly generous with what little she had, she ends up in heaven. And, and Peter meets him at the gates, and he says, Okay, look, come on, I'm going to take both of you to your, uh, to your eternal home in heaven. And they're walking down the street, and they come up on this elaborate mansion. I mean, it is, it is just beyond anything the mind can comprehend. And Peter looks at the little old lady, and he says, Ma'am, he said, because of what you did on earth and what the Lord had gave you, this is your eternal reward. And the rich man is wringing his hands because he thinks, Man, if that little old poor lady 
If she got a mansion like that, I can only imagine what mine's going to be like. And they go down a little further, and he got a little shack. And he looks at Peter, and he says, Peter, that something must be wrong. <laughs> I lived in a much grander house than this while I was on earth. How in the world can I live in such a, 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 a small, tiny place here in heaven? To which Peter looked at him and said, Sir... We could only build with the materials that you sent up. Our friends in heaven that Luke 16 talks about will be those whose lives we touched here on earth who will have their own eternal dwellings. Luke 16, 9 seems to say our friends' uh, eternal dwellings are places where we stay in fellowship, perhaps as we move about in the heavenly kingdom. The money we give to help others on earth will open doors of fellowship in heaven. You ever thought about that? Look at what John Bunyan said. Whatever good thing you do for him, if done according to the word, is laid up for you as treasures and chests and coffers to be brought out, to be rewarded before both men and angels, to your, to your eternal comfort. Is this a biblical concept, all this idea about rewards? Well, yeah. Paul spoke about it in Philippians chapter 4. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul's like, look, I don't need your money. The reason why I seek the gift from you is for your benefit, not my benefit. He says, look, I want you to get involved in the work of the Lord. I want you to give. Why? Because what I want you to do is I want you to increase your life in heaven. God keeps an account open for us in heaven, and every gift for His glory is a deposit into that account. Listen, if we, when we get to heaven, if, if Corey's, if his reward is greater than mine, I won't be jealous of Corey because you can't get jealous in heaven. I'll rejoice and I'll be thankful for what Corey did. So there's no competition, there's no jealousy there. But listen, if the Lord has laid before us an opportunity to have unlimited reward from Him, why would, we not, why would we not go after it? If I offered you a job in France and said, look, you go to France and everything you buy in France has to stay in France. You can't bring anything back to the States when you come back. But here's what you can do. If you'll go to France and work, you can send anything and everything that you make in France back to the United States. What would you do? Would you go over there and just start living in the posh place, buying up all kinds of stuff? Or would you live meagerly? And would you, would you live even below your means? And would you live in such a way you're like, look, I can't take anything that I get here but anything that I make here, I can send it back.
Is it unspiritual and selfish to talk about eternal rewards? Well, no, it's not. And you know why it's not? Because Jesus is the one that told us to pursue these rewards. Jesus is the one that told us to lay up stuff in heaven. Jesus is the one who told us to leverage unrighteous man, ma, ma, uh, money uh, to make friends for eternity. So Jesus directs our giving. He's the one that's leading this charge. He's the one that, that's commanding us and encouraging us and prodding us to do this. So let's go to the last point because, again, there's so much more I could say about this. And, G, and look, Jesus says, look, don't do this for people that can pay you back. Do it for people that can't, that can't give anything back to you. Uh, go on to the uh, flip ahead there, Mark. Our giving, creates, uh, our giving creates rejoicing. Let me say one other thing before I, before I finish this last point. Back in Hebrews eleven twenty six, we won't go to it, but Hebrews eleven twenty six talks about uh, Moses and how Moses sacrificed all the riches of Egypt. Remember, he grew up. Uh, in the home of the Pharaoh, he had all the wealth that he could possibly want. I mean, he lived an abundant lifestyle, and yet he gave it all. Why? Because he gave it all because he was looking to the reward. Moses was looking for the reward. God had promised him something, and he was believing with all of his heart that living for here and now is not worth it, but living for what is to come is the only way to live. And listen, I don't have time to read all the scriptures on rejoicing. I'll just tell you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. But listen, our giving leads to rejoicing. You'll never be more joyful than when you give. Why? Because when you give, you're never more like Christ. That's what Jesus did. He gave, come on David, He gave everything for us why? So that he could make us into people that if it came down to it, we would be willing to give everything for anybody. Jesus doesn't tell everybody to give all you have and come and follow me. But here's what Jesus does say. Jesus says, because I own everything, I have the right at any point in time in my relationship with you to tell you, divest yourself of everything and follow me. Listen, this morning, the Lord calls us to start at the very bare minimum. And that is a tenth. That's, that's, not, that's not the ceiling. That's the floor. That's where we begin. But listen, last week, you can go back now. You can go on the, you, not on YouTube, but you can go to the church website. And if you go under missions, you can go missions and it'll say, it'll say media. You can watch last week's sermon. But we have challenged our church to do more than we've ever done, not for ourselves, but for missions. Our giving is off the charts. The Lord has blessed us in crazy ways, okay? But, 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 but here's, where we, here's where we haven't been strong. We've been strong in giving to the work of God at Eureka. But what, where we really need to pick up our game and where we really could increase our generosity, and, and, and that's what the Lord wants us to do. He never wants us to be satisfied with what we're giving. He all, he's always wanting us to increase our generosity. And so last week we introduced this, hold the rope. For our missionaries that said, look, we'll go down into the pit 
Andrew and Kara and, and, and little baby Evelyn, and oh, by the way, they just found out they're pregnant. Mama's going to be having a baby in February in Indonesia. Hmm? How about that? They didn't say, oh, let's, hold on, let's postpone Indonesia because Mama needs to stay here in the States and have this baby in the States. No, the, the plan is still in full effect. We're going. And when the missionary mood, movement started all the way back in the 1700s, William Carey told Andrew Fuller, he said, Andrew, if you'll hold the rope, I'll go down into the pit. But you've got to hold the rope. And so last week, we challenged this church in the next six months to give $22,000 to missions. When you go out this hallway, you'll always see an updated report on the giving. You can go on the church website, on the mission section, see a, a weekly update. Guess what? Last week, $6,400 given to missions. That was $5,500 that we had already pre-committed by the admin team. And last week, you gave $900 additional dollars. And here's what we encourage you to do last week. Get everybody in your family involved, from the oldest to the youngest, and come prepared to give something every week. We've got these envelopes that we put out, and it's got a mission section. And you can write your amount and write your name there. And as we, get, as we sing here in a moment, these final songs of the morning, you can take whatever it is that you want to give, if it's a dollar, if it's a quarter, if it's a hundred dollars, and just drop it in this box. And if last week you didn't pick up a little bracelet, there's this little rope-shaped bracelet that says, hold the rope. And all we ask people to do is, if you'll commit to give, pick up one of these bracelets and wear it as a constant reminder in your daily life. You know what? I don't really need that $4 coffee. I told everybody last week, I gave up my Americanos. Why? Because it's sinful to have an Americano? No, because I want to do more. I want to give up something. There, there are people that are giving up big chunks of their life to go for the gospel. And I'm praying, Lord, what else can I give up? How else can I be more generous? Because I want to do more than I've ever done. Why? Because I want to make sure that the gospel gets to people in time. Look, I'm, it's one thing to, to relieve earthly sufferings. And that's a lot of what missions does. But listen... Earthly sufferings have no, nothing in comparison to eternal suffering. And that's why we send missionaries. Why? Because we believe heaven's real and we believe hell's real. And we believe if people don't hear the gospel and believe on G the Lord Jesus Christ, they will not be saved. They will spend eternity separated from the Lord Jesus Christ. And how can they believe if no one is sent? How can they believe if they don't hear the message? And that's what this is all about. It's about all of us collectively as the family of God coming together and making small sacrifices and doing a little more than we did, than we've ever done before. And if we all collectively do a little more, we can not only get to $22,000, we can blow past $22,000. And every single penny of it will make it to Vietnam. It'll make it to Indonesia. It'll make it to Haiti. It'll make it to Honduras. 
And it'll support those missionaries that we love and that we want to see them continue to do the work of God in that area. Father, in the moments ahead, I pray that we would realize that because we've experienced grace, we should be gracious. And no more tangible way for us to be gracious than to give. Give. 